0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you'd turn to 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, and if you want to, maybe take your bulletin or something else and Uh, stick it over in Ephesians 4. We'll be looking at some things out of Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 2 as we get to the end of today's message as well. So 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians 4. In 22 plus a month or 2 or 12 uh, years of preaching and teaching and I've had many times where I have finalized a message or finalized a teaching opportunity and I've had a little conversation with God that goes something like this. Really? This is what you want me to say? And I had one of those moments Friday afternoon as I was wrapping up and finishing my preparations and downstairs in my office and I I got done and got done putting into the format from which I preach and I put my hands on my head and leaned back in my chair. I said, really, God, this this is what you want me to say? And 22 years, he's never reversed it on me. So he didn't today. So I've been praying the last... 24 hours or so I asked the praise team yesterday through a text to pray along with me that not only would I deliver today's message with grace but that we would receive today's message with grace. Because sometimes the biblical teachings and challenges are not easy for us to receive. Sometimes they step on our toes a little bit. I promise you if it steps on yours today it stepped on mine all week preparing it. But we need these moments. We need these moments where we learn something from the truth of God's word that challenges us and changes us and does what I pray every Sunday, that we leave these moments different from how we came in. We're doing the Lord's Supper today and the modern observation of the Lord's Supper or the frequency of the Lord's Supper differs from church to church, and denominational group to denominational group and Some do it weekly, some do it monthly, some do it quarterly, and it really doesn't matter how often or how frequent you do it. What matters is the motive, what matters is the heart, what matters is the intent with which we do it, which is what we're going to look at here with Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 11. But I do want to give you some background. From what we know of the early church, it was done quite often. It was taken very often, and most of the time, if not all of the time, it was taken in a larger context of it actually being a worship service. I'm going to read to you from Acts 2 42 through 47 as an example of what Scripture tells us. It says, They, the believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's an understanding of the early church in those early days and that literally in a daily sense, they were coming together for worship and the breaking of bread, which is a phrase that often really ties two things together. It's the fellowship around a meal, but also the observance of or the remembrance of Christ through the Lord's Supper. In Acts 20, there's this this story that some of you may remember, this young man named Eutychus. Paul's preaching. Paul's preaching long. Paul goes all the way to midnight. So number one, I don't ever want to hear anything else about 1215, okay? And I I haven't heard anything about 1215. I'm just joking with you. But he goes on to midnight, and Eutychus falls out of the window to his death because Paul's so long-winded. And it tells us in there that after Paul went and got him and basically resurrected him from the dead, he continued teaching until daybreak. Like if somebody takes a tumble out of the top row up there in the balcony, I'm guessing I probably wouldn't keep on preaching. But maybe if they raised from the dead, I would, you know. Um, But in that context of Acts 20, it says at the beginning there in verse 7 that they had come for the breaking of bread. It wasn't just a separate thing they were doing. It wasn't just a, 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 a piece that was added on. The breaking of bread, the fellowship of a meal, the remembrance of Christ, it was all tied into worship. I think additionally here in 1 Corinthians, we tend to read chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 in very separate ways. But I believe the flow of these four chapters really is Paul writing to the church at Corinth about all of the pieces of their public worship. In chapter 11, before we get to where we're going to look today, he talks about men and women prophesying or encouraging the church publicly. In chapter 12, he moves on to discuss spiritual gifts and the usage of them in a public setting, ideally, the public worship. Chapter 13 is this little insert where he talks about love being the thing that really guides all of this. But then in 14, he gets back to dealing again with prophecy and with speaking in tongues in public worship. And ends chapter 14 with this discussion on what it looks like to have orderly worship. So when we're reading today about the Lord's Supper and the meal that's going on with it and the, the, the difficulties and the issues the Corinthian church was having, I want us to understand this. This was part of worship. It was not just something that they were, they weren't just coming together for a meal. They weren't just coming together for a separate time of the Lord's Supper. All this was part of or integral to a New Testament church worship service. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means for us today before we close. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning verse 17, if you want to follow along with me. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The phrase come together appears three times in the scripture, verses 17 and 20, and then an additional two times further down in verses 33 and 34. So in this entire section from verse 17 down through 34, Paul uses this phrase come together a total of five times, which tells us it must be fairly important. Now I know some of you are in your heads going, come together, and just keep that to yourself. But he's, he's talking about people coming together for a specific purpose. He's not, he's not talking about just an informal gathering. He's not just talking about just on a whim like, like we might do today where we just text a few people at 4.30 and say, hey, you want to get together tonight and, and have a cookout or come over for dinner or play some video games or watch a movie? He's talking about in this phrase that it is a specific purpose that they are coming together for. And, of course, the purpose from the flow of chapters 11 through 14 is the the intent worship of Christ, which includes a meal, which includes the Lord's Supper, which includes parts like singing and preaching and teaching and the using of the spiritual gifts in the body and so on and so forth. This is important because defining the gathering begins with defining the purpose for the gathering. When you define a gathering, when you find a time to come together, the purpose of it is what dictates that it should look like. And so it's important for us to understand where Paul is coming from here. And he has, quite honestly, some harsh language for the church. There in verse 17, he says, I do not commend you. In the, in the following instructions and what I'm about to write to you concerning the way you take the Lord's Supper and really concerning the way you enter into worship, I do not commend you. The word commend is a word that means praise or approval. And so essentially what Paul is saying in sort of our everyday language is, I do not approve of the way or the manner in which you are coming together. And he says, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. The, the end result of the church at Corinth coming together for these times of worship centered around a meal and the Lord's Supper and the, the worship they would have and the teaching they would have and the use of the spiritual gifts that they would have. The end result was negative, not positive. Why? He tells us in verse 18 and 19, there were divisions and factions among them. Look at verses 18 and 19 again. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Let's stop right there. If you're familiar with the letter of 1 Corinthians, you know that Paul has already spoken to issues of division right out of the gate in chapter 1. Let me read that for you in case you're unfamiliar with that or do not remember that. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 12. I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people there is quarreling among you. What I mean is that each of you each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. He points to a division in the church at Corinth over who people were pledging their earthly allegiance to. Who, who they were, had serving as spiritual mentors or fathers or whatever kind of, uh, kind of idea you want to put to that. And elevating one over another and then separating off into divisions and, and groups that way. And that had troubled the church so much that here's the way he describes them in 1 Corinthians 3. Beginning verse 1. I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people... But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving only in a human way, contrary to behaving in a way being led by the Spirit?" So he had already dealt with divisions at the church, and it was divisions over these different people they were following. Now he deals with a second group of divisions, and it's really a division that had sort of a socioeconomic factor to it, if you will. For when they came together for the meal and for the observance of the Lord's Supper, um, it probably most closely resembled what we would know as a potluck and everybody brought their own food and their own drink and but the intent of it was to share and the intent of it was those who had a lot could bring a lot those who did not have very much could bring what they could afford to bring but all would partake of whatever bounty there was equally We, we know how that goes at potlucks right you know, you know, folks, that you know, I'll, I'll bring the meat, I'll bring the steaks, I'll bring the pork chops, I'll bring this, that, and other. And then you, you look at that poor married couple that's only been married a year and you know they're really struggling. You say, Y'all bring paper plates. Y'all bring two liters, right? Because we don't want to put them out. But by the same token, when we all get together in a setting like that, what do we do? We all partake equally, no matter who has brought what. So in this setting for the church of Corinth, this is what was going on. But look at what he says in verses 21 and 22. I'm going to jump ahead just a moment. He says, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? Shall I approve of this action? No, I will not. Those who were wealthy, those who had affluence, those who were able were bringing large amounts of food and large amounts of drink and coming to come together in this worship setting, but not waiting for everybody else to get there. Not waiting for the poor couple in the New Testament who could only bring the paper plates or only bring a couple, of two liters. And they were going ahead with their meal and going ahead with their drink. They were, they were looking to fulfill themselves Before they thought about anyone else's fulfillment. And that was causing divisions. And because of that, that's why Paul would say earlier, when you come together, it's not for better, but it's for worse. And so he says, there are divisions among you. Then look at the end of verse 18 and end of verse 19. And I believe it in part, or I believe it partly... For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. It's this really interesting statement by Paul who says, Okay, I know that there are divisions among you over these socioeconomic lines, and I believe it, but I also believe it because there have to be some factions. That word for factions, that second usage of that word there in verse 19 is actually the word we get our English word heresy from. And the word heresy is a word that means to deviate from the truth or to teach or preach a falsehood. And so he, he, in this really sort of very unique way, he's saying there's some division among you. In the church body, there needs to be occasionally some division among you so that you who are genuine of the faith can be recognized against those who are not genuine. Let me give you an example. If today, I were to stand up here today and say, you know, after much thought and after much studying and reading and and discernment, I've come to the belief that Jesus really didn't raise from the dead. His body was stolen from the grave. It was all done to propagate this big lie that uh, they wanted to get their faith started. And there were some Roman soldiers in on it as well. And so all this happened. And Jesus is still a great man. He taught great things. We still ought to follow him and learn from him but he just is not risen from the dead and some of you might go well he's never led us wrong before maybe, maybe, maybe he's right in this if that were to happen there should be a division in this church there should be a group of people who stand up literally or figuratively and say no 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 no, no, no. that is not what we believe that is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what Jesus did or not what the disciples did in stealing the body. There, had, there would have to be, Paul says, occasionally these things to rise up so that you could see who the genuine worshipers were and who those were not. But understand this. What he's saying here in comparing the division over food and eating and these issues and the division over what would be known as a heresy is this... The heresy is the only thing the church should be divided over. The only thing that a local body of believers should be divided over is if someone, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a youth director, a children's director, anybody who who has that opportunity to lead people in teaching of the word, if that person is teaching something that is antithetical to the gospel of God, of Jesus Christ, of his grace and his mercy and his love for us, that should dictate a division this stuff no that should not because what happens is when that happens look at what he says there in verse 20 when you come together it is not the lord's supper that you eat in other words he says because of the first set of divisions not the heresy But because of the first set of divisions, because people were being separated into groups because some were of their own individual wants and needs, and I'm going to eat what I brought, and I'm going to drink what I brought, and I'm not going to share, and I'm not going to wait, and I'm not going to think about others, and I'm not going to put others ahead of myself in humility. He says, when you come together for the Lord's Supper, it's not really the Lord's Supper that you eat. Why? Because in coming together for that, they are not honoring the Lord. They're not honoring who Jesus is and was. They're not honoring even what he did when he instituted this meal. He did that through service. John tells us as part of that meal, he washed feet. And not only washed feet, he washed Judas's. He did it through humility. He did it through the focus on sacrifice. Paul is saying, you might think you're coming together to honor the Lord, but you're not. You're coming together to honor yourself. And so because this is a piece of a bigger picture of worship, the application for not only us, but for any church body is this. When we come together, who are we honoring? When we come together... Are we truly coming together to praise him, to put his name first, to speak of his glory and his greatness in the gospel? Or are we coming with our own sort of individual desires, needs, wants, as they were doing here in Corinth with the food and the drink, and not honoring him? We we may often think that we're coming together for those purposes, but sometimes we miss the mark. It doesn't mean we can't have personal preferences. It doesn't mean we should not have loving, calm discussions over those personal preferences to see if we can find a middle ground of compromise. But we cannot let those individual preferences divide as their individual preferences to go ahead and eat and drink and not wait divided that church. For a lack of real unity prohibits the mission. Some some years ago, when I was younger and in better shape and could still play basketball, a group of guys that I went to high school with and some other friends joined a league in Harrodsburg, and we had a pretty good team. We had a couple guys that played small uh, D one or D two basketball, and other guys that were good high school basketball players. and And there was another team that we were just all season were just neck and neck with. And we came into the second to the last week of the regular season. Both teams undefeated playing and really understanding that whoever won that one was going to finish that regular season undefeated. And that team, as good as we were, we couldn't hold a candle to that team. They had multiple D1 players. They had multiple guys who, who outsized us and out, out-talented us in every way. But we came together pretty good that night. And we started putting them on them pretty good. If you've ever played any athletics, you know that feeling when when everything starts to click. And by the, the middle of the third quarter, they called a timeout, and we were up on them about 25, 26 points. And we knew, we knew we were sitting in a good spot. But you know when we really knew we were sitting in a good spot? When they got into a fist fight on their bench, because we were beating them so bad. The moment they lost their unity, In all those moments we were playing in our unity, it did not matter that they were bigger, better, stronger, faster. We had them broken. Now the church of Jesus Christ is bigger, better, stronger, faster than anything that the enemy throws at us. But any moment that the church of Jesus Christ, any local body of believers or any joined body of believers begins to fight amongst themselves, all of a sudden we give an enemy who has zero power against us a foothold. And all of a sudden we begin to lose and we begin to lose the sight of the mission. And this is why Paul was addressing this with Corinth and this is why we address it here today. There's a mission set before us, brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a mission set before us to live in such a way to use our words, our deeds, our talents, our gifts, everything that God has given us to proclaim to a world that already knows disunity. They're fractured on so many levels, they don't even understand what unity means. We have a mission set before us to be unified in such a way that we present Christ as beautiful. And this is what the Lord's Supper does for us. The Lord's Supper unifies us in a beautiful way. You know why? Because in just a few moments when you take this cup and the remembrance of the body broken and when the remembrance of the blood that's shed, what it teaches every single one of us in here is this. We have all been saved the same way. There's no one in here who's been saved in a better fashion or a worse fashion. There's no one in here who's been saved because you have more money or less money. There's no one in here who's been saved because great-great-granddaddy was a circuit-riding preacher back in the 1800s. What the Lord's Supper does is it unifies us. It teaches us that we have been saved the same way. And here's the way Paul would write about this in Ephesians. I told you to mark there. I told you we'd get there. And as we close, that's what we're doing. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, he says this. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, or for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, or some of your translations will say preserve, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You say, how, how, does, how do we have this unity? Is this something we have to muster? No, it's not anything we have to muster. It's been given to us in Christ. In Ephesians 2, this is what Paul says to to help us understand this unity. In Ephesians 2, beginning verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by the work of the cross. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Where do we gain the unity that we are supposed to maintain and preserve? From Jesus. Yes, at the cross he paid for my sins and yours. Yes, at the cross, he gave up his life so that you and I would not have to face a penalty that we could not pay. But also at the cross, Paul says, Jesus gave us unity in the spirit. He gave us this gift that we are, according to Paul, supposed to maintain or persevere and preserve. And we do that because back in 1 Corinthians 11, you don't have to turn there, but back in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, because as often as you do this, you proclaim the death of Christ. I have two reflection questions for us as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, Paul says, so what we ought to do before we take the Lord's Supper is examine ourselves. He even goes on to tell the church at Corinth, some of you are sick, some of you are ill, some of you have even died because you've observed the Lord's Supper and in a bigger context you've observed worship in an unworthy manner. You've made it about you, not made it about Jesus. So the first reflection question is this, for the unity that Christ acquired for us at the cross, are we exhibiting the qualities necessary to maintain it? Are you and I individually and collectively exhibiting the qualities necessary for maintaining it? What are those qualities? I'll go back to Ephesians 4 just to remind us. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another, bearing with one another in love and eager. Are you and I maintaining the unity of the body of Christ by exhibiting those qualities with one another? And then secondly, are you and I by our lives individually and collectively actually proclaiming Christ's death? And what I mean by that and what I believe Paul intends here with that statement in 1 Corinthians 11 is this. To say that are we living together and living individually both both ways in such a way that we honor him by how we honor him? In my life as an individual, in your life as an individual, in our lives collectively, are we by our lives proclaiming Christ's death? And proclaiming that what he has done is made a difference. That what he has done is set us free. That what he has done has given us a new life. Are we exhibiting the qualities? Are we proclaiming his death by our lives? Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pvcfrankfurt@gmail.com. gmail.com.